Chapter 3 I must take leave to observe, Sir Walter, said Mr. Shepherd one morning at Kellynch Hall, as he laid down the newspaper, that the present juncture is much in our favour. This piece will be turning all our rich naval officers ashore. They will be all wanting a home. Could not a better time, Sir Walter, could not be a better time, Sir Walter, for having a choice of tenants, very responsible tenants. Many a noble fortune has been made during the war. If a rich admiral were to come in our way, Sir Walter, he would be a very lucky man, Shepherd, replied Sir Walter. That's all I have to remark. A prize indeed would be Kellynch Hall to him. Rather the greatest prize of all. Let him have taken over so many before. Hey, Shepherd? Mr. Shepherd laughed, as he knew he must, at this wit, and then added, I presume to observe, Sir Walter, that in the way of business, gentlemen of the Navy are well to deal with. I have had a little knowledge of their methods of doing business, and I am free to confess that they have a very liberal notions, and are as likely to make a desirable tenants as any set of people whom one should meet with. Therefore, Sir Walter, what I would take leave to suggest is, that in, if in consequence of any rumours getting abroad of your intention, because we know how difficult it is to keep the actions and designs of one part of the world from the notice and curiosity of the other, Consequence has its tax. I, John Shepherd, might conceal my family matters that I choose, for nobody would think it worth their while to observe me, but Sir Walter Elliot has eyes upon him which it may be very difficult to elude, and therefore thus much, uh, th this much I venture upon, that it will not greatly surprise me if, with all our caution, some rumour of the truth should get abroad in the supposition of which, as I was going to observe, since applications will unquestionably follow, I should think any from our wealthy naval commanders particularly worth attending to, and beg leave to add that two hours will bring me over at any time to save you the trouble of replying. Sir Walter only nodded, but soon afterwards, rising and pacing the room, he observed sarcastically, there are men among the gentlemen of the navy, I imagine, who would not be surprised to find themselves in a house of this description. They would look around them, no doubt, and bless their good fortune, said Mrs. Clay, for Mrs. Clay was present. Her father had driven her over, nothing being of so much use to Mrs. Clay's health as a drive to Kellynch. But I quite agree with my father in thinking a sailor might be a great desire, a very desirable tenant. I have known it a good deal of the profession, and besides their liberality, they are so neat and careful in all their ways. These valuable pictures of yours, Sir Walter, if you choose to leave them, would be perfectly safe. Everything in and about the house would be taken such excellent care of. The gardens and shrubberies would be kept in almost as high order as they are now. You need not be afraid, Miss Elliot, of your own sweet flower gardens being neglected. As to all that, rejoined Sir Walter coolly, Supposing I were induced to let my house, I have by no means made up my mind as to the privileges to be annexed to it. I am not particularly disposed to favor a tenant. The park would be open to him, of course, and few navy officers or men of any other description can have had such a range, but that what restrictions I might impose on the use of the pleasure grounds is another thing. I am not fond of the idea of my shrubberies being always approachable, and I should recommend Miss Elliot to be on her guard with respect to the flower garden. I am very little disposed to grant a tenant of Kellynch Hall any extraordinary favor, I assure you, be he sailor or soldier. 
After a short pause, Mr. Shepherd presumed to say, In all these cases, there are established usages which make everything plain and easy between landlord and tenant. Your interest, Sir Walter, is in pretty safe hands. Depend upon me for taking care that no tenant has more than his just rights. I venture to hint that Sir Walter Elliot cannot be half so jealous for his own as John Shepherd will be for him. Here Anne spoke. The Navy, I think, who have done so much for us, have at least an equal claim with any other set of men for all the comforts and all the privileges which any home can give. Sailors work hard enough for their comforts, we must all allow. Very true, very true, what Aunt Miss Anne says is very true, was Mr. Shepherd's rejo rejoinder, and oh certainly was his daughter's, but Sir Walter's remark was, soon afterwards, the profession has its utility, but I should be sorry to see any friend of mine belonging to it. Indeed, was the reply, and with a look of surprise. Yes, it is in two points offensive to me. I have two strong grounds of objection to it. First, as being the means of bringing persons of obscure birth into undue distinction, and raising men to honors which their fathers and grandfathers never dreamt of. And secondly, as it cuts up a man's youth and vigor most horribly. A sailor grows old sooner than any other man. I have observed it all my life. A man is in great danger in the navy of being insulted by the rise of one whose father, his father might have disdained to speak of, and of becoming prematurely an object of disgust himself than in any other line. One day last spring in town I was in company with two men, striking instances of what I am talking of, Lord St. Ives, whose father we all know to have been a country curate without bread to eat. I was to give place to Lord St. Ives and a certain Admiral Baldwin, the most deplorable-looking personage you can imagine. His face the color of mahogany, rough and rugged to the last degree, all lines and wrinkles, nine gray hairs of a side, and nothing but a dab of powder atop. In the name of heaven, who is that old fellow? said I to a friend of mine who was sitting, standing near, Sir Basil Morley. Old fellow, cried Sir Basil, it is Admiral Baldwin. What do you take his age to be? Sixty, said I, or perhaps sixty-two. Forty, replied Sir Basil, forty and no more. Uh, picture to yourselves my amazement. I shall not easily forget Admiral Baldwin. I never saw quite so wretched an example of what a seafaring life can do, but to a degree I know it is the same with them all, and they are all knocked about and exposed to every climate and every weather till they are not fit to be seen. It is a pity that they are not knocked on the head at once before they reach Admiral Baldwin's age." "'Nay, Sir Walter,' cried Mrs. Clay, "'this is being severe indeed. Have a little mercy on the poor man. We are not all born to be handsome. The sea is no beautifier, certainly. Sailors do grow old betimes. I have often observed it. They soon lose the look of youth. But then, is not it the same with many other professions, perhaps most others? Soldiers in active service are not at all better off, and even in the quieter professions, there is a toil and a labor of the mind, if not of the body, which seldom leaves a person a man's looks to the natural effect of time. The lawyer plods, quite careworn. The physician is up at all hours, and traveling in all weather, and even the clergyman. She stopped a moment to consider what might do for the clergyman. And even the clergyman, you know, is obliged to go into infected rooms and expose his health and looks to all the injury of a poisonous atmosphere. 
In fact, as I have long been convinced, though every profession is necessary and honorable in its turn, it is only the lot of those who are not obliged to follow any, who can live in a regular way in the country, choosing their own hours, following their own pursuits, and living on their own property, without the torment of trying for more, it is only their lot, I say, to hold the blessings of health and a good appearance to the utmost. I know no other set of men, but what lose something of their personableness when they cease to be quite young. It seemed as if Mr. Shepherd, in this anxiety to bespeak Miss Sir Walter's good will towards a naval officer as tenant, had been gifted with foresight. For the first well, for the very first application for the house was from an Admiral Croft, with whom he shortly afterwards fell into company and in attending the quarter sessions at Taunton, and, indeed, he had received a hint of the admiral from a London correspondent. By the report which he hastened over to Kellynch to make, Admiral Croft was a native of Somersetshire, who, having acquired the ver a very handsome fortune, was wishing to settle in his own country, and had come down to Taunton in order to look at some advertised places in that immediate neighborhood, which, however, had not suited him. That accidentally hearing... It was just as he had foretold, Mr. Shepherd observed. Sir Walter's concerns could not be kept a secret. Accidentally hearing of the possibility of Kellynch Hall being to let, and understanding his, Mr. Shepherd's, connection with the owner, he had introduced himself to him in order to make particular inquiries, and had, in the course of a pretty long conference, expressed as strong an inclination for the place as a man who knew it only by description could feel and given Mr. Shepherd, in his explicit account of himself, every proof of him being a most responsible, eligible tenant. "'And who is Admiral Croft?' was Sir Walter's cold, suspicious inquiry. Mr. Shepherd answered for his being of a gentleman's family, and mentioned a place, and Anne, after the little pause which followed, added, "'He is a rear admiral of the White. He was in Trafalgar action, and has been in the East Indies since. He has been stationed there, I believe, several years. "'Then I take it for granted,' observed Sir Walter, "'that his face is about as orange as the cuffs and capes of my livery.' Mr. Shepherd hastened to assure him that Admiral Croft was a very hale, hearty, well-looking man, a little weather-beaten, to be sure, but not much, and quite the gentleman in all his notions and behavior, not likely to make the smallest difficulty about terms.' only wanted to a comfortable home and to get into it as soon as possible, knew he must pay for his convenience, knew what rent a ready-furnished house of that consequence might fetch, should not have been surprised if Sir Walter had asked more, had inquired about the manor, would be glad of the deputation certainly, but made no great point of it, said he sometimes took out a gun but never killed, quite the gentleman." Mr. Shepherd was eloquent on the subject, pointing out all the circumstances of the Admiral's family, which made him particularly desirable as a tenant. He was a married man, and without children, the very state to be wished for. A house was never taken good care of, Mr. Shepherd observed, without a lady. He did not know whether furniture might not be in danger of suffering as much, where there was no lady as where there were many children." A lady, without a family, was the very best preserver of furniture in the world. He had seen Mrs. Croft, too. She was at Taunton with the Admiral, Admiral, and had been present almost all the time they were talking the matter over. "'And a very well-spoken, genteel, shrewd lady she seemed to be,' continued he. 
asking more questions about the house and terms and taxes than, than the admiral himself, and seemed more conversant with business. And, moreover, Sir Walter, I found she was not quite unconnected to this country any more than her husband. That is to say, she is sister to a gentleman who did live among us once. She told me so herself, sister to the gentleman who lived a few years back at Monkford. Bless me, what was his name? At this moment I cannot recollect his name, though I have heard it so lately. Penelope, dear, you can help me to the name of the gentleman who lived at Monkford, Mrs. Croft's brother. But Mrs. Clay was talking so eagerly with Miss Elliot that she did not hear the appeal. I have no conception who you mean, Shepherd. I remember no gentleman resident at Monkford since the time of old Governor Trent. Bless me, how very odd. I shall forget my own name soon, I suppose. A name that I am so very well acquainted with. Knew the gentleman so well by sight. Seen him a hundred times. Come, come to consult me once, I remember, about a trespass of one of his neighbors. Farmer's man breaking into his orchard. Wall torn down. Apples stolen. Caught in the fact and afterwards, contrary to my judgment, submitted to an amicable compromise. Very odd indeed. After waiting another moment, You mean Mr. Wentworth, I suppose, said Anne. Mr. Shepherd was all gratitude. Wentworth was the very name. Mr. Wentworth was the very man. He had the curacy of Monkford, you know, Sir Walter, some time back, for two or three years. Came there about the year dash five, I take it. You remember him, I am sure. Wentworth? Ah, I, Mr. Wentworth, the curate of Monkford. You misled me by the term gentleman. I thought you were speaking of some man of property. Mr. Wentworth was nobody, I remember, quite unconnected, nothing to do with the Strafford family. One wonders how the names of many of our nobility become so common. As Mr. Shepherd perceived that this connection of the Crofts did, not, that did them no service with Sir Walter, he mentioned it no more returning, with all his zeal, to dwell on the circumstances more indisputably in their favor, their age, and number, and fortune, the high idea they had formed of Kellynch Hall, and extreme solicitude for the advantage of renting it, making it appear as if they ranked nothing beyond the happiness of being the tenants of Sir Walter Elliot. An extraordinary taste, certainly, could they have been supposed in the secret of Sir Walter's estimate of the dues of a tenant." It succeeded, however, and though Sir Walter must ever look with an evil eye on any one intending to inhabit that house, and think them infinitely too well off in being permitted to rent it on the highest terms, he was talked into allowing Mr. Shepherd to proceed in the treaty, and authorized him to wait on Admiral Croft, who still remained at Taunton, and fix a day for the house being seen. Sir Walter was not very wise, but still he had experience enough of the world to feel that a more un unobjectionable tenant in all essentials than Miss than Admiral Croft bid fair to be could hardly offer. So far went his understanding, and his vanity supplied a little additional soothing in the Admiral's situation in life, which was just high enough, and not too high. I have let my house to Admiral Croft, which sound extremely well, very much better than to any mere mister. A mister, save perhaps some half dozen in the nation, always needs a note of explanation. An admiral speaks his own consequence, and, at the same time, can never make a baronet look small. In all their dealings and intercourse, Sir Walter Elliot must ever have the precedence. Nothing could be done without a reference to Elizabeth, but her inclination was growing so strong for a removal that she was happy to have it fixed and expedited by a tenant at hand, 
and not a word to suspend decision was uttered by her. Mr. Shepherd was completely empowered to act, and no sooner had such an end been reached than Anne, who had been a most attentive listener to the whole, left the room to seek the comfort of cool air for her flushed cheeks, and as she walked along a favorable, a favorite grove, said with a gentle sigh, A few months more, and he, perhaps, may be walking here. Chapter 4 he was not Mr. Wentworth, the former curate of Monkford, however suspicious appearances may be, but a Captain Frederick Wentworth, his brother, who being made commander in consequence of the action off St. Uh, Domingo, and was immediately employed, had come into Somersetshire in the summer of 1806, and having no parent living, found a home for half a year at Monkford. He was at that time a remarkably fine young man, with a great deal of intelligence, spirit, and brilliancy, and Anne an extremely pretty girl, with gentleness, modesty, taste, and feeling. Half the sum of attraction on either side might have been enough, for he had nothing to do, and she had hardly anybody to love, but the encounter of such lavish recommendations could not fail. They were gradually acquainted, and when acquainted, rapidly and deeply in love. It would be difficult to say which had seen highest perfection in the other, or which had been the happiest, she in receiving his declarations and proposals, or he in having them accepted. A short period of exquisite felicity followed, and but a short one. Troubles soon arose. Sir Walter, on being applied to, without actually withholding his consent or saying it should never be, gave it all the negative of great astonishment, great coldness, great silence, and a professed resolu resolution of doing nothing for his daughter. He thought it a very degrading alliance, and Lady Russell, though with more tempered and pardonable pride, received it as a most unfortunate one. Anne Elliot, with all her claims of birth, beauty, and mind, to throw herself away at nineteen, involve herself at nineteen in an engagement with a young man who had nothing but himself to recommend him, and no hopes of attaining affluence, but in the chances of a most uncertain profession, and no connections to secure even his farther rise in that profession, would be indeed a throwing away, which she grieved to think of. Anne Elliot, so young, known to so few, to be snatched off by a stranger without alliance or fortune, and rather sunk by him into a state of most wearing, anxious, youth-killing dependence. It must not be, if by any fair inter of friendship, any representations from one who had almost a mother's love and mother's rights, it would be prevented. Captain Wentworth had no fortune. He had been lucky in his profession, but spending freely, what had come freely, had realized nothing. But he was confident that he should soon be rich. Full of life and ardor, he knew that he would soon have a ship, and soon be on a station that would lead to everything he wanted. He had always been lucky, he knew he should be so still. Such confidence, powerful in its own warmth, and bewitching in the wit which often expressed it, must have been enough for Anne. But Lady, Lady Russell saw it very differently. His sanguine temper and fearlessness of mind operated very differently on her. She saw, it but an, she saw in it but an aggravation of the evil. It only added a dangerous character to himself. He was brilliant, he was headstrong. Lady Russell had little taste for wit and of anything approaching to imprudence and a horror, she deprecated the connection in every light. 
Such opposition as these feelings produced was more than Anne could combat. Young and gentle as she was, it might yet have been possible to withstand her, her father's ill will. Though unsoftened by one kind word or look on the part of her sister, but Lady Russell, whom she had always loved and relied on, could not, with such steadiness of opinion and such tenderness of manner, be continually advising her in vain. She was persuaded to believe the engagement a wrong thing, indiscreet, improper, hardly capable of success, and not deserving it. But it was not a merely selfish caution under which she acted in putting an end to it. Had she not imagined herself consulting his good, even more than her own, she could hardly have given him up. The belief of being prudent and self-denying, principally for his advantage, was her chief consolation under the misery of a parting, a final parting, and every consolation was required, for she had to encounter all the additional pain of opinions on his side, totally unconvinced and unbending, and of his feeling himself ill-used by so forced a relinquishment. He had left the country in consequence. A few months had seen the beginning and end of their acquaintance, but not with the few months ended Anne's share of suffering from it. Her attachment and regrets had, for a long time, clouded every enjoyment of youth, and an early loss of bloom and spirits had been their lasting effect. More than seven years were gone since this little history of sorrowful interest had reached its close, and time had softened down much, perhaps nearly all, of peculiar attachment to him. But she had been too dependent on time alone. No aid had been given in change of place, except in one visit to Bath soon after the rupture, or in any novelty or enlargement of society. No one had ever come in within the Kellynch circle who could bear a comparison with Frederick Wentworth, as he stood in her memory. No second attachment, the only thoroughly natural, happy, and sufficient cure at her time of life, had been possible to the nice tone of her mind, the fastidiousness of her taste, and the small limits of the society around them. She had been solicited, when about two and twenty, to change her name, by the young man who not long afterwards found a more willing mind in her younger sister, and Lady Russell had lamented her refusal, for Charles Musgrove was the eldest son of a man whose landed property and general importance were second in that country only to Sir Walter's, and of good character and appearance, and however Lady Russell might have asked yet for something more, while Anne was nineteen, she would have rejoiced to see her at twenty-two, so respectably removed from the partialities and injustice of her father's house, and settled so permanently near herself. But in this case, Anne had left nothing for advice to do, and though Lady Russell, as satisfied as ever with her own discretion, never wished the past undone, she began now to have the anxiety which borders on hopelessness for Anne's being tempted, by some man of talents and independence, to enter a state for which she held her to be peculiar, peculiarly fitted, by her warm affections and domestic habits. They knew, knew not each other's opinion, either its constancy or its change, on the one leading point of Anne's conduct, for the subject was never alluded to. But Anne, at seven and twenty, thought very differently from what she had been made to think at nineteen. She did not blame Lady Russell, she did not blame herself for having been guided by her, but she felt that were any young person in similar circumstances to ap apply to her for counsel, they would never receive any of such certain immediate wretchedness, such uncertain future good. She was persuaded that under every disadvantage of 
disapprobation at home, and every anxiety attending his profession, all their probable fears, delays, and disappointments, she should yet have been a happier woman in maintaining the engagement than she had been in the sacrifice of it. And this, she fully believed, had the usual share, had even more than the usual share, of all such solicitudes and suspense been theirs. Without reference to the actual results of their case, which, as it happened, would have bestowed earlier prosperity than could be reason reasonably calculated on. All his sanguine expectations, all his confidence had been justified. His genius and ardor had seemed to foresee and to command his prosperous path. He had, very soon after their engagement ceased, got employ, and all that he had told her would follow had taken place. He had distinguished himself and early gained the other step in rank, and must now, by successive captures, have made a handsome fortune. She had only navy lists and newspapers for her authority, but she could not doubt his being rich, and in favor of his constancy she had no reason to believe him married. How eloquent could Anne Elliot have been, how eloquent at least were her wishes on the side of early warm attachment, and a cheerful confidence in futurity, against that over-anxious caution which seemed to insult exertion and distrust providence? She had been forced into prudence in her youth, as learned, she learned romance as she grew older, the natural sequel of an unnatural beginning. With all these circumstances, recollections, and feelings, she could not hear that Captain Wentworth's sister was likely to live at Kellynch without a revival of former pain, and many a stroll and many a sigh were necessary to dispel the agitation of the idea. She often told herself it was folly, before she could harden her nerves sufficiently to feel the continual discussion of the Crofts and their business no evil. She was assisted, however, by that perfect indifference and apparent unconsciousness among the only three of her own friends in the secret of the past, which seemed almost to deny any recollection of it. She could do ju justice to the superiority of Lady Russell's motives in this over those of her father and Elizabeth. She could honor all the better feelings of her calmness, but the general air of oblivion among them was highly important from whatever it sprung, and in the event of Admiral Croft's really taking Kellynch Hall, she rejoiced anew over the conviction, which had always been most grateful to her, of the past being known to those three only among her connections, by whom no syllable she believed would ever be whispered, and in the trust that that among his, the brother only with whom he had been residing had received any information of the short-lived engagement. That brother had been long removed from the country, and being a sensible man, and moreover a single man at the time, she had a fond dependence on no human creatures having heard of it from him. The sister, Mrs. Croft, had then been out of England, accompanying her husband on a foreign station, and her own sister, Mary, had been at school while it all occurred, and never admitted by the pride of some and the delicacy of others to the smallest knowledge of it afterwards. With these supports, she hoped that the acquaintance between herself and the Crofts, which, with Lady Russell, still resident in Kellynch, and Mary fixed only three miles off, must be anticipated, need not involve any particular awkwardness.